you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Sports betting is sweeping across the country faster than the coronavirus, and Wagering Week is your antidote. I'm Tom Martin, and I'm a veteran sports analyst and respected sports handicapper who helped build ESPN's brand. I've been recognized and awarded by Pro Football Weekly and Gaming Today magazine as the honest handicapper. Let the other guys give you the same old boring sports talk with the same tired storylines. We'll give it to you straight here every Friday on Wagering Week. Don't gamble with other podcasts. Let Sports Garden Network's Wagering Week help your bottom line. Welcome to Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. Gosh, Connor, this is exciting. This is episode number four. I feel we're about ready for our highlights. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We could take a week off and just sit back on our laurels and have a clip show. Connor and I did a... uh, podcast with Ken Jeffries for two years. Yeah. And uh, I don't know why we called it the Royal Oak Show. We got rid of that title. Chose that name randomly. Too Many Lawyers is much better. much better. But uh, we did do a clip show after 75 episodes, Mm -hmm. you may recall. And it was so much fun that the only difficulty is when we looked at the clips, we realized... There wasn't anything substantive, serious, or important, or, or heavyweight. It was just us, you know, Ramping. laughing our yeah. butts off at ridiculous <laughs> stories in the news. That's what's most fun, though. Yeah. Well, so maybe we gotta gotta think about that. That was the flavor that. of that show. It's it was less legal. It was more topical. It was just <laughs> three dudes sitting around chatting. It was yeah. Great. So you're not you're not gonna get any fun stuff. Out, yeah. Not today. Out of this show. So uh, we uh, are delighted that you've joined us here because uh, we really feel great about where the show is going. Uh, what we're trying to do is present two very different views. I'm a libertarian, and I'm a baby boomer. How would you describe yourself? I would say I'm a uh, millennial and a progressive. Okay, so it sounds like we're just totally opposite. But actually what happens in our conversation here is that we realize that we've got some common ground. And I, I've been thinking about it. I think it's because we all share the same values. Everybody cares about the same four things. One is security. One is freedom. One is fairness, and one is compassion. And I think as long as you're not one of the haters, you know, a a white racist who hates black people or somebody who hates all rich people, and as long as you're not in it for the greed, you know, you want to buy votes and win your political job or, or personally want money to go in your pocket, not because it's the best thing for society, but because you just like more money in your pocket. If you get, if you cull the conversational herd and get rid of those people, then it doesn't matter if you're a Marxist or a libertarian or an Anne Randian or whatever, you can you can have a good, healthy exchange of ideas and somehow meet common ground. Yeah, I think that the techniques that you can have in your back pocket to make sure that your conversations, your political conversations, when you choose to have them, when you choose to engage them, you're in the right headspace to engage with them, you're in the right place to engage with them, with the right person, that those techniques that I think you and I have learned from each other, from interacting with each other and, and strongly disagreeing in many ways and from interacting with other people throughout our, our lives and careers. Those are really powerful techniques, stuff you 
sometimes maybe learn in law school. Sometimes you maybe learn in the workplace. Sometimes you maybe learn, you know, navigating as you have through the uh, the L.A. news and radio and TV worlds. Like you've got to deal with people with dramatically different views. You got to deal with the billionaire conservatives. You got to deal with the the liberals yeah, and the again, media, as you uh, as they say. But again, as long as people are honest right. and don't just have their own personal interest at right. stake. I mean, let's face it. You're a millennial and very. Uh, excuse me, you are a, a progressive and, yes. and I'm a libertarian. Let's face yeah. it, this is a pipe dream. Neither one of us is going to accomplish these public policy objectives because the great middle almost always is going to dictate where we come out. And in our conversations, I was thinking of an example we talked about, the ban the box issue. Mm, now, yeah. people are familiar with this idea of a guy gets out of prison, he's paroled or whatever, there's a little box on the employment form and it says, you know, please state if you've ever been convicted of 17 felonies where 50, 50 people were killed. Right. And he, he checks yes. And let's, let's face it, he's never going to get a job. No, never. And he's going to be uh, on unemployment, or he's going to go back to a life of crime. Mm-hmm. Recidivism rate is like thirty percent after, or fifty percent after three years. So, my f- initial attitude as a libertarian: well, a company owner, he should be have the freedom to hire anybody he wants. And so, uh, you know, let's 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 not ban the box. Let's force him to check it. But in in our conversation. I kind of recognized some very good points that you made that if people if the people have this millstone around their neck for their whole lives, then they aren't going to get a job. And maybe there is such a value in fresh start that we ought to reconsider it. So I think that we kind of meet in the middle. Yeah, I think that that conversation that we had was so fruitful, uh, and other conversations were, that we've had were so fruitful in the other direction where I you know came around to your uh, perspective. Um, that was so fruitful because I did exactly as you described. I moved the conversation to be about one of those four huge tenets that that defines us, those four values that we we uh, you know all identify with. And I think that one was probably compassion. It wasn't just like I didn't even try to argue that uh, you know economically it would be better off. You got that on your own because you already have that the knowledge and understanding. And I was able to perceive. This guy doesn't need me to explain the economic impacts of felons not being able to get jobs. He knows that. But the thing that I think changed your mind on that topic was the compassion argument, understanding where these uh, these folks were coming from, putting yourself in their shoes and realizing that while the value of the freedom uh, that the, the employer has uh, to choose who works for him is, is important, well, the compassion aspect was sort of unexamined. Yeah. It maybe is equally important. That's partly true, but also it was the shrooms I dropped. I think yeah, that, that was yeah, a yeah. big factor. We've had really productive conversations since we did started doing psychedelics. Yeah. So we're going to talk Harvey Weinstein uh, primarily today. That's that's kind of the big focus of of the episode. We're also going to get into Michael Avenatti. He he did not have a real good week. No, he didn't. Um, so, but before we get to Harvey, I did want to talk a little bit about Roger Stone. I mean, uh, my gosh, this guy. Um, apparently, the line prosecutors in the Department of Justice said, "Yeah, this Roger Stone, seven to nine years uh, for for lying and intimidating witnesses and mm-hmm. so on." And, of course, Trump has just been beating the drum for how Roger has been treated improperly and so on. And then all of a sudden, the, the head a guy of the DOJ or the high ups say, oh, seven to nine, that really was inappropriate. We're going to pull that back. We're going to get back to you. And, of course, the Democrats went nuts right. because they said, oh, well, this is clearly a situation where uh, the mouthpiece for the president, uh, William Barr, the attorney general, is right. just doing his bidding. He's a soft pardon. Yeah, but then Barr came out and said, hey, guess what? It's impossible for me to do my job with all this climate of tweets and so on. 
that was kind of shocking that he would he would say that. That it sounds like a slam against the president, to whom he seems to have been pretty loyal up until yeah. now. I wouldn't say that it was. It was, of course, surprising, right? It, it, that is a, a, an unusual outcome, one that we have not yet seen. We have not yet seen a single Trump official who still has their job. We've seen lots of people talk crap about the president <laughs> as soon as he fires them, uh, or as soon as they. Hey, quit. Kellyanne Conway's husband trashes the president every day. She's still got her job. She does, but he Which makes is me wonder how does she keep her job. But that's but tough. that's a topic that's for another show. I mean, I think that I think that in this specific scenario with Barr, it's pretty clear that he got the hall pass, as they say, as mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell gives senators the hall pass to vote uh, to to go against the Republican agenda because it helps them win their districts. Barr probably. It's my opinion, then a lot of people's opinion, that Barr probably got the okay from Trump and the White House generally to send this uh, to send this message out well, there because it makes it look like Trump has less influence than the DOJ, like it's not maybe. untoward influence and control over the Roger Stone sentencing, which gets Trump off the hook. Maybe, but here's the opposite side. And this yeah. was a, a piece written, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal by a former assistant U.S. attorney mm-hmm. in the Central District of California. Mm-hmm. His name is Bilal Asili. And we'll find out if, if what he says is true. But he said that the line prosecutors actually lied to the bosses of the Department of Justice. You say line L- prosecutors? The line, the guys on, on the front line. Right, not lying. Not L-Y-I-N-G. Yeah. You know, no, these are the good guys, the good guys, Connor, who actually wanted to put Roger away forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The rest of his natural born life. Anyway, the, the allegation is that these prosecutors who were on the front lines lied to the bosses about the 7 to 9. And so it came as a big shock to the bosses. And according to this guy who wrote the peace in the paper, seven years is way too high for this kind of nonviolent conduct. Usually, in his experience, you got to have armed robbery, something like that. And he pointed out Lee Baca, former sheriff of uh, L.A. County, he got three years for obstructing an FBI investigation into corrupt jails where dozens of inmates were beaten yeah. and, and aides covered it up at and the direction of And they shuffled prisoners around to hide them from the uh, the federal government who's trying to investigate Baca's yeah. crimes. So I will say the media hasn't really gone overboard reporting the alleged lies by the Lying, lying to prosecutors. Agreed. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens with Roger Stone. I, I think this highlights another, you know, difficulty with our our system of of precedent uh, in the legal system. The the legal system. It, it does a very good job of evolving because you can have new cases that come down and new decisions by judges that shape culture and, and the way things are done, and that can change pretty quickly. But it does also uh, allow us to look backwards and find something. You can always find a case that goes both directions when you're making an argument, and then the judge ends up weighing them. So really, the judge just makes an independent decision anyway. But if you want to substantiate, if you want to say, well, uh, this case— um, uh, I need support for this case. I'm going to go find a, a case with somewhat analogous facts. I'm going to go back to Lee Baca. It's pretty easy to look at Lee Baca's case and say, look, this guy shuffled prisoners around. All these people were physically beaten. It was terrible. He only got three years. He got off easy. His, his sentence should have been bigger, but we're looking at his sentence as though it sets a precedent that we should be following. And that, of course, is the danger of one of the parts of our legal system is it has the illusion of consistency and being based on something when really it's just up to the new judge. So we're going to get uh, heavy into the Harvey Weinstein story, and, th- and that's not fat shaming, by the way. No, that's just a, a, a random word I used. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we come back after our pause, uh, we're going to ask the question, should the district attorney in New York City have started with these two women who were victims of Harvey Weinstein when 
both of them had consensual sex with Harvey Weinstein within a few the few years after the alleged rape and sexual assault. We're going to armchair quarterback this. Yeah, exactly. We're going to look at the whole hindsight angle. So uh, that's next on Too Many Lawyers. Stick with us. Hey, America, Christopher Hahn here, the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. What is with the president and the right-wing echo chamber encouraging these astroturf protests against stay-at-home orders around the country? It's ridiculous, and it needs to stop. Check out the Aggressive Progressive Podcast wherever you download podcasts. We're back with Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And we're talking about Harvey Weinstein. Uh, he's, uh, he's on the bubble right now. Uh, we're taping this on uh, Sunday, the 15th of February, the 16th, actually. And, of course, the final arguments wrapped up uh, last Friday, a couple of days ago, in the New York City uh, trial of Harvey Weinstein. If convicted, he's looking at decades behind bars. Yeah. And the question that, that occurred to me was, with 90 accusers of Harvey Weinstein, why would the district attorney in Manhattan choose to start off with the very first trial, as they say in the law, the bellwether trial that would probably dictate the outcome of other trials? Right. Why would he choose to start with two victims who, according to the testimony, they admitted that they had consensual sex with Harvey Weinstein within the next couple of years after, in one case, a woman claimed rape, the other uh, case, the woman claimed sexual assault. He forced her to engage in a sexual act. Now, I get the idea that experts abound out there that will explain and have in other high-profile trials, mm -hmm. that just because somebody does something that seems suspicious, like seems like they're friendly with the, the accused, it doesn't mean a rape didn't happen. Right. But still, if you're the DA, don't you want to make your case as strong as possible? And with 90 possible victims out there, I mean, do you think maybe we should be second-guessing this prosecution decision? I mean, it's always easy for us sitting in our armchairs to try to second-guess what the New York uh, prosecutors do. I think that they—I uh, think that in, in order to prosecute a criminal case like this, you've got to juggle a lot of balls, specifically— um, and most importantly, the fact that all of these accusers, or many, many of these accusers, are in, involved in either class action lawsuits or individual civil lawsuits against Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, as a matter of fact, company. Harvey Weinstein's lawyer made hay during her final argument right. out of the fact that Gloria Allred, representing at least one of the victims uh, involved in the trial, and I think she represents several of them, civil, tr civil cases are pending against Weinstein. The defense attorney pointed at Gloria, who everybody knows, right. and made hay out of the fact that, well, these women do have a financial incentive because they're going to try to score big against Harvey Weinstein, right. which so, is their right absolutely. if they have been victimized. Yeah, but it, it, it creates complication because uh, not everybody... Uh, who has a uh, has a currently pending lawsuit against Weinstein wants to go forward with uh, uh, their 
you know, and, and testify uh, in their uh, criminal case because that could determine the outcome of their civil case. They would probably prefer to get their civil case uh, settled before the criminal action because while it might confirm what, what he did was criminal, it might also uh, lead him to be less interested in uh, settling the case uh, or if he's exonerated somehow um, uh, in some way, uh, then they might lose their civil case as a result of that. So I think there's there are a lot of competing interests here, right. and, the, and the the prosecutors in New York are on a ticking clock of public opinion. They need to move forward. They people want this case to happen. Yeah, and one thing that may have been a, a big deal in their minds is this: they had the opportunity, thanks to the rulings by the judge in this case, yeah. to present not only the two victims—one rape victim, one sexual assault victim—but also several additional victims who didn't have necessarily the baggage of having engaged in consensual sex with Harvey Weinstein in the next few years after after the events. Right. And of course we've seen in recent times that was probably critical in the Bill Cosby situation because kind of you remember in the first Bill Cosby trial the the judge did not allow numerous additional victims to testify. Primarily it was just Andrea Constand and she had her own baggage because after the alleged sexual assault, she and her parents went up to Montreal to a comedy concert Bill Cosby was putting on, right. gave him a gift, right. asked him for tickets to other events. Yeah. And so the prosecution uh, had, had that cross to bear. Mm-hmm. But then in this, there was a hung jury. In the second trial, the judge said, you know what, I, I like this pattern and practice argument by the prosecution. I'm going to let five or six wit, uh, women testify saying they got the same kind of treatment from Bill Cosby. And of course, we know that he was convicted it's up on appeal and and the and Cosby is trying to claim that that was unfair right I, I don't think that he, he's he's likely to win on that but so maybe the prosecutors in New York figured well yeah a couple of uh, our, our two main accusers have some problems but we'll be able to convince the jury with with the pattern and practice argument yeah I I think that I think that the overall burden that the prosecutors have to bear is that the victims of Harvey Weinstein were victims because, that is, he was able to victimize them because he is one, uh, was maybe the most powerful man in Hollywood, right? He, you know, executive produced thousands of, of films. He had like 300 Oscar wins or something on his projects. This is a guy who's so unbelievably, incredibly powerful that his word is the word of God. Uh, in Hollywood. And these are people over whom he therefore had tremendous power. I think the prosecutors probably looked at that situation and said, that's our ammunition. That's what makes our case powerful. We actually get to own that. And we get to walk in there and say, jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this guy is so unbelievably, incredibly powerful. He has everyone kissing his toes. And there's no way that you can live as an actress in Hollywood without surviving the overtures and and being influenced by the power of Harvey Weinstein. So if you get warm emails to him from the the accusers after uh, after the alleged uh, assaults occurred, where they say things like Harvey, you know, I'm uh, just wanted to check in. It's been so long since we spoke. Uh, I just want to let you know, um, you know, I'm starting a yoga studio at the moment, but um, that doesn't mean I'm out of the game. I still am, uh, am available for, for work in movies. Right. Hey, you know, give me a call. That is evidence that the prosecution 
wants to beat the drum about and wants to point to and say, get out in front of it, own it, and say, this is, wh- this is what's going on. This is why there was assault. This is why he was able to control women. And yes, they're sending these emails because they're the victims. And so, so you have to turn it on its head. And you have to get ahead of bad evidence. No, that's right. So we're in this twilight zone period where the jury is just now getting the trial. and mm-hmm. We don't know how long the deliberations are going to be. We obviously don't know the outcome. But I wonder if the false memory expert that Harvey Weinstein's lawyers put on will have an impact there when coupled with the the fact that there was friendly uh, contact between the victims and Weinstein. Mm. Uh, there was a, a woman named Elizabeth Loftus, uh, and she has testified in uh, about 300 trials, including O.J. Simpson, Ted Bundy, the Rodney King cops. And what her point is is that memories can be distorted and contaminated and sometimes false, that eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable, so why not as to sexual assault as well? She's she's talked about how therapy and hypnosis can actually plant false memories. You have a sense, Connor, or, or a guesstimate as to whether the jury might be impressed with this kind of thing? I mean, she's got a track record of, of testifying successfully in a lot of these cases. You think a jury is going to believe that you know, these women, it's just uh, false memories, they, they got confused, and plus add in uh, to the mix the fact that, well, they are looking for a, a payday in their civil suits? I don't think so. I think that that evidence, like, that evidence is... Um that sort of expert testimony is probably more persuasive in cases where you've got uh, children as the uh, the witnesses whose memories uh, you know were, were maybe changed or distorted. I think most people think of themselves as pretty effective machines for recall of the past, and they transfer what they believe about their own ability to remember things and form memories uh, to uh, other people, and they're going to say, "Look." It's all well and, and good for you to, to put up a scientist on the stand who says that memory is malleable and flexible and can be influenced, uh, but I know what I've seen in my life. And they might be wrong. You know, they, they might be looking back at, at their childhood at things that never happened because their, their memories are uh, you know, malleable and influenced by other factors. But people don't think of themselves that way. It's really hard to convince a jury, not just that this lady is mistaken about something, but that you are mistaken about something. That's a bridge that's harder to cross. I mean, I—, I it's easy to, to put up a, an expert on the stand that says that individual person's credibility is bad because X, Y, Z. Right. But it's really hard to say to the jury, all people you included's brains are broken, and this is how yeah, they're broken. It, it's hard to convince it them. It can be a hard sell because the jury may listen to that and say, you know, it's a lot of psychological mumbo-jumbo. Right. And you know what? This lady, Elizabeth Loftus, is being paid probably hundreds of thousands of dollars to put together this report. Right. Do we really want to trust her? Hey, when we come back, uh, uh, one more point about Harvey Weinstein, and then we'll get to the Michael Avenatti drama. But the Weinstein issue is a huge interesting tactical decision was made by the prosecution uh, after one of their two victims was beaten up on the on the stand three grueling days of cross-examination. We'll talk about that and Michael Avenatti when we return on Too Many Lawyers. We're back on Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And before we get to Michael Avenatti, one more point on Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Jessica Mann was one of the accusers, and uh, she testified. Very emotional, lots of detail, lots of tears in, in the jury, in the on the jury, and in the courtroom. But then uh, she experienced grueling cross-examination over three days that challenged her credibility, challenged her sanity. 
And Connor, it was fascinating to me, and I think a lot of people were sort of shocked by this. After Jessica Mann endured this three days of cross-examination, which by most accounts brought up some, some really powerful points for the defense, the government, based on trial procedure rules, had a right to stand up and ask what's called redirect questions. Right. A witness starts out with direct, friendly questions from the government, putting the victim on, then cross-examination. And then you have a right as the prosecution to stand up and say, okay, now, they brought out this issue and that and, and this inconsistency, but let's talk about it. And in a very friendly, rehabilitative way, go back to it. Right. The prosecution chose not to ask a single question. And it was really a surprising tactical decision. And I think a lot of observers thought that it was sort of an acknowledgement that it had been so effective. There's not much we can do to rehabilitate her. And of course, if the government asks redirect rehabilitating questions, that gives the defense a chance to once again slam at her. Now, right. If the defense is seen by the jury as just repeating it or beating up on her or, or piling on, that can be bad. Yeah. But generally, that's the pattern for two or three times back and forth. Each side takes a turn well, and, until either the, the two sides of lawyers say, that's it, judge, no more. Or the judge right. says, you're starting to repeat, repeat. yourself. Let's yeah, move nothing on. New, yeah. I mean, was that surprising to you that they wouldn't ask a single question after one of their two chief witnesses uh, had been beaten up for three days? Well, that actually... I. That can go either way. When you have uh, the choice of uh, you do you do direct exam, then you do cross exam. If if you need to redirect your witness, that is, do rehabilitating direct examination of your witness, where you ask friendly questions as you described, you only need to do that if the cross examination was effective. So the assumption that the cross examination was really effective and tore her apart somehow and, and made her credibility look bad or right, something right. like that. Right. If the cross X falls right. flat, then yeah. the, then the lawyer who brought the witness on exactly. is happy to stand up and smile and say, Your no, Honor, I have no further right, questions exactly. of the this witness. And we'll thank her and excuse I her. I think that that's what the prosecutors were going for. Well, maybe they're trying to convey that sense to the jury, right. but most people felt that the, the damage had been done. She really, did what, get beaten up. What, what was it that that the that they thought meant that the damage had been done as opposed inconsistent to inconsistent statements and it's of course the classic technique for cross examination in the course of interviews by a witness to uh, the the cops right. things that get transcribed and right. then they testify in, in a certain way in trial inevitably there are going to be some disconnects between the Always. two and in this case she of course had to uh, own up to the fact that she had consensual sex with Harvey Weinstein after in the next couple of years after the incident right. i think those were the primary things and Maybe the prosecution felt like there's just nothing we can really do. Well, I mean, the to more the more times, yeah, the more times the jury hears those words, right, the right. worse. And if you if you do a good job on direct of getting your witness out ahead of of everything and having them admit to the stuff that's going to be negative and highlight the stuff that's going to be positive, when then they spend three days cross-examining her and you know trying to, to ruin her life, it can look like they're the ones who are bringing stuff up that you already got out ahead of. It's just like Bernie Sanders saying, I'm a socialist, so that when people say, you're bad and evil and want the government to be too big and overreach, he gets to go, yeah, I said I'm a socialist, so is your favorite uh, voter base's program, uh, Medicare, so what are you going to do about it? Like, get ahead of it. Own that. And I think if they did a good job of that on direct exam, then it is only to their detriment to bother with redirect. Frankly, I think 
Uh, it's it's like when I sit down in a deposition as an attorney, and you, uh, you and you, I, I have a very well coached uh, plaintiff person who's seeking money in the lawsuit, and I'm asking him tons of questions. If they are well coached and they do a good job of telling their story, their lawyer doesn't have to do direct That's exam, right. and it just opens me up as you described. And I, th- and I think it's important to note that uh, whereas the plaintiffs of witnesses are coached, yours are prepared. Of course, yeah, They're totally That's different. A very Coach important distinction. Prepared. Well, I mean, of, I mean, my my witnesses are defendants, so they're always the good guy. There you right? go. That's how that works. Right? Let's talk uh, Michael Avenatti. Uh, unlike the Harvey Weinstein situation, where we would need a crystal ball, no crystal ball necessary, <laughs> Mr. Avenatti. Well, as to his other uh, suits, the Stormy Daniels suit right. and the one where. He took the 130 grand for his paraplegic client and yeah. bought a Maserati instead. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen there, but we do know that he was convicted of uh, the extortion angle. Yep. And I have to say, say Connor, I think the conviction of, of Michael uh, Avenatti is the biggest endorsement of the legitimacy of the jury system uh, I can imagine. Hallelujah. And, and here's why. And yeah. not because, you know, oh, yippee, I'm happy he went down. Right. Here's why. Uh, Michael Avenatti is known by the entire planet as an enormous enemy of Donald Trump. I mean, these guys are oil and water. Mm -hmm. We know that Donald Trump is hated by roughly 50% of the population. Yep. Okay. You have to assume that the jurors included at least a few, maybe half, maybe more than half, of people who really don't like Donald Trump and yet knew that Michael Avenatti was his arch enemy. And this is a centerpiece of Avenatti's claim, is that I'm being persecuted by the government here for crimes, and Trump is the head of the government. So for this jury, which we got to assume, since we're in the business of assuming here, included a bunch of people who hate Trump and and saw Avenatti as kind of a hero, for them to convict him unanimously, which is what you have to do in criminal court in America, with very few exceptions— uh, to me, as I say, that's a really good endorsement of the jury system. God bless us, Santa's real, the system works. Because only one juror to vote not guilty would hang them up. That's all it takes. And so, yeah, it, it's pretty amazing. The The idea of him being convicted, though, I, I wanted to run by you mm-hmm. whether or not it really was such a slam dunk to convict him. It's pretty thorny. There are plaintiff's lawyers who are a thorn in the side of a gigantic corporation who sue them many times over years and get a lot of money. And sometimes those plaintiff's lawyers go to the companies and say, well, you know, I'm back. There's another one. Uh, We can talk settlement here. But also, you know, I could be a consultant for you. You could pay me X dollars a year. I wouldn't sue you anymore because I'd know, you know, confidential stuff from you. I wouldn't be allowed to sue you. I wouldn't be allowed to sue you, and I would help you prevent further lawsuits. You can take me off the market. Yeah, this sounds weird, but it actually happens. It's not super common, but it happens. It would be like the Dodgers... putting uh, the Astros' best pitcher, oh, bad, bad choice of uh, team, uh, say the Dodgers picking the Giants' best uh, best pitcher and paying him <laughs> yeah. not to play yeah. against them. So this is legal. And so now we go to what Michael Avenatti did. He goes up to Nike and he says, okay, I, I know you did these terrible things and sort of you paid off high school coaches and so on. Right. And doggone it, I got this lawsuit here. I'm going to drop it. I'm going to have a press release. Your market capitalization is going to go down $5 billion. Mm-hmm. So instead, just pay me $20 million to be a, quote, consultant for you, pay some money to my client, we'll settle the lawsuit. So why is what he did illegal extortion blackmail and what other plaintiff's lawyers do not the same kind of thing? 
Firstly, right off the bat, I think we should acknowledge that basically nobody knows about this practice of what plaintiffs' lawyers do and the way they get sort of taken off the market, uh, like you know, like a sports team would take the pitcher off the market. Um, no one really talks about that. Nobody knows about that. That's very literally inside baseball to use the, the metaphor that's so apt here. But um, to the extent that when you that say happens, it's literally inside baseball, do you you mean that the sport of baseball is actually involved in what we're talking about um, here? Yeah, exactly. Because you did say literally. I did say literally. And or, what, or did you say figuratively? And what I meant by that oh, was— Oh, you said literally. It is literally oh. the example that I just used. Oh, okay. Inside. Then that's all right. Oh, yeah, we saved it. Okay, yeah, thank you for bringing me back on track. So, literally. Yeah, yeah, it's in the dictionary now, uh, as figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so this is something that is not talked about. The popular culture and, the, 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 and society, they don't know. Mm-hmm. And— only sort of holds up as okay and allowable. I wonder if Avenatti's defense presented evidence of that, because I didn't spend much time in the courtroom, like none. Uh, I would think it would have been smart for him to have presented evidence that this is a real thing. Yeah, to kick Taking up somebody yeah. on as a consultant, yeah. yeah. I, I think I think the whole scheme is already so shady, though, that it, it is really, really hard to to justify it in front of a jury and say, you'd basically be saying, look, other people do shady stuff, too, and that's not really a great effective defense. Kind of a slim shady thing, because I think yeah. Eminem and yeah. Avenatti look pretty similar in that respect. Uh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, the the... One thing that the lawyer will always tell you is is that the the job uh your your job is to tell the story that your client is the good guy right and to say other people do crimes too doesn't contribute that well to your story that you're the good guy now sometimes you can't be the good guy sometimes you have to abandon that strategy and do something totally different because there's just no opportunity to actually paint your guy as a good guy and in this situation maybe that should have been the play maybe to armchair quarterback a little more um Avenatti's guys should have given up on the chance of being the good guy and just said look that's how these things work now the problem with that is that this wasn't exactly the same. And the way that plaintiff's lawyers, not to say they're all evil, but some plaintiff's lawyers get away with this sort of shady scheme is there's a disconnect between them showing up with a brand new lawsuit. That is, I have a client who owns something. Right. When you have, when you have a, a, law, a right to file a lawsuit, that's worth money. That's like having a Microsoft stock in your hands, right? That is a, 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 an asset that you can uh, give, you can sign over to a creditor to pay off a debt, uh, or you can get a loan against uh, your your uh, right of recovery in a lawsuit, uh, and it's just multiplied by the probability that you'll get X dollars, and that's how much that's worth, right? And that that asset that you go into Nike with and you say, pay my client based on this asset, that has to be disconnected from the idea that yeah. Nike says, no, oh think- my gosh, we're just getting pounded by this guy. We got to get him off the market. He's too good a pitcher. He keeps beating us up and, and we're never going to win the World Series if we don't get this guy off the market. If that there's a disconnect, a healthy disconnect between those two things, then this lo- is less shady and it becomes a, a legal thing that can actually get done. As opposed to the Avenatti example, where Avenatti went in and explicitly said, because Nike was setting him up, they knew exactly what to say, and they were recording him and did all this. Avenatti explicitly said, oh, no, 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 don't pay my client, pay me instead. That is what was so unethical. That is what makes it bribery and extortion. That is what happened. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening. Uh, This has been Too Many Lawyers, and we'll see you next time. So long. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. 
connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.